Hello, Charlie Higgs. Hello there. You've come in to talk about your new book, The Enemy, and people will know you from a lot of TV stuff and radio stuff from The Fast Show. But what probably a lot of people don't know is that you used to be a pop star. Well, not pop star, pop musician. So you were in a band called Higgs. I was in a band called Higgs. I was a singer, we, and I was a professional singer for six years. You were really a big deal. No, we, I mean, we were, we were a proper band. It was the early 80s, and it was kind of the last gasp of live music before... All the kind of electronic music of the 80s killed that off and the club scene sort of took over. So actually when we started, there were a lot of places to play because we were very much a live band. We played sort of indie, scratchy, white funk for whatever. Punk funk, I think probably is what it was called. And it was very much a live music. And when we started, there were lots of places to play live, which slowly dwindled. Not that I'm blaming that on our demise. But uh, it's interesting now to see how live music has really come back because it is the only way that musicians can make a living. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. But you still, you had a concert that got played out on Radio 1. You had one that got played out on ITV as well. Yeah, we did a, a thing called Live from London on ITV. We had three albums, you know, we did about four or five tours of America and stuff. So we were a, a proper band, but At, on an indie level. But you had singles on Two-Tone, which is the special. Yeah, two thing. singles on Two-Tone. We helped to kill Two-Tone off. <laughs> did you? It was towards the end where they were thinking, well, we can't just do scar music because scar music was on its way out so they thought well we'll diversify and get some other stuff in and that was the final nail in their coffin why did you decide to stop doing it though because it was you that decided wasn't um it? various reasons i mean in my heart of hearts i didn't really see myself as being a pop star and wanting to do that for my life it's a great thing to do when you're young bunch of friends together you get to travel around you know i saw more of britain that way than most people have and europe and the states and you have a laugh and you get given free beer. You don't make any money at it. Even quite big bands don't make any money. And tiny bands like us, it was very much hand to mouth. And to carry on like that, you've got to be dedicated. You've got to think, I am a rock god. This is my life. I really want to do this. And the singers that are successful are the ones who see themselves as being something special. You've got to do that. If you've got to entertain a huge crowd on a vast stage, you've got to think on a certain level that you are a god. So to really be a successful pop singer, you've got to be a complete wanker. So I, maybe I wasn't enough of a wanker. <laughs> but also, the bass player and myself, to make a bit of extra money, we started doing decorating between tours. And we realised that if we knocked the music on the head and became full-time decorators, we'd actually make quite a good living, which is what we did. Did you decorate Florian Laurie's house? We did, <laughs> yes. It was funny because we were still decorating, myself and Paul Whitehouse. He was a plasterer and I was a painter, and we used to work together quite a lot. And we were friends of Harry Enfield. He was up and coming in the comedy world and starting to do Saturday Night Live and stuff. And we were writing bits and pieces for him, but we were still decorating. And he knew Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, who were sharing a house in Dalston. So he got Paul and I in to do the whole house up. We did a very good job on it. Their careers took off in a big way. They managed to move out. In the meantime, our TV careers had taken off in a big way and we bought the house off them, so having you... done it up nicely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we partly drove them out because we were a little bit messy occasionally. But, uh, you know, it's funny you get houses like that where uh, they get passed from one dynasty to the next. Then you were working on Harry Enfield's shows. Yes. Well, we started him. writing for Saturday Night Live, which became Friday Live, Writing Stavros and loads of money and 
bugger all money. And on the back of that, Harry got his own show, which we ended up writing for. But I mean, Paul and I never, it was great fun working with Harry and it was our, you know, proper foot on the ladder of show business. But we thought we don't really want to be seen as Harry Enfield's writers for all time. So we started trying to develop our own stuff on the side, which eventually became The Fast Show. That started off on TV, was it 94? The first series was 1994, yes, 15 years ago. So it was the two of you writing? Well, we put it together. We didn't write all of it. But first series, we probably wrote about 70% of it. We didn't want it to be just us doing everything. We wanted it to have a, a range of styles, a range of performers and different writers. So we looked for good writer performers to fill out the team and also other writers people like Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews who wrote Father Ted but for us they did the Ted and Ralph characters and a couple of other bits and pieces and then their career took off elsewhere. So it was a huge deal it was a massive show. Well it was I mean it was a big BBC Two show I mean it wasn't ever on BBC One I think probably if we carried on we, we, we might have moved across. So it was yeah, all right, yes, it was a massive show. It was absolutely massive. No, it was. I mean, it's one of those things It's in retrospect. It's kind of, when you're making it, you're just making a TV show and you're enjoying it and you're glad that people are watching it. And the importance or lack of importance of a show is only kind of in retrospect. And you can get shows that are massive at the time that are now forgotten. Luckily, The Fast Show seems to have held its place in history. Well, it was different from a lot of other sketch shows, uh, partly for being fast. Well, for being (laughs) funny. But I mean, for having such quick sketches, for having a lot of them not in a studio, but shot on location. Yeah, well, I mean, that was a standard thing in sketch shows. You'd normally have sort of two or three studio sketches, and then you have a little package of location stuff. We tried to mix it up a bit. I mean, it was really, we just made something that we wanted to watch. And, And having worked on sketch shows and watched a lot of sketch shows, the traditional sketch show format, You've got a lot of time setting up each new sketch of like, here we are, these are the people, this is what they're doing, blah de blah de blah and this is the big joke. And it was always leading towards that big punchline. And you'd always see it coming about halfway through the sketch and be waiting just to get there. And we sort of thought, well, let's let's get rid of the jokes <laughs> and build in towards a punchline. If you keep things short enough, you can just enjoy it for what it is. And it's not about where's this going. And by doing regular characters, which again was nothing new, it's about just enjoying seeing what the characters are doing that week rather than, as I say, that, that constant kind of starting from scratch, building something up and then bang, there's your joke and moving on to the next thing. And what we sort of tried to do was to do a show that was all highlights. You know, that way you can watch a sketch show and then you can edit everything down to the highlights of those sketches and enjoy it just as much. We thought, well, let's just try and do that, take out all the fat. And, you know, it was great fun on that level. And yes, it, it was a bit different. But inevitably, as the way these things go, when you do something like that, and the next person's coming along to do a sketch show, they they have to say, oh, well, we can't do it like that, because that's what they did on the Fast Show. So I'm not sure we were that kind of, um, well, influential. I mean, in terms of other people copying the style, I think if you have a very strong style, people can't copy it. They've got to do something different. So I think probably the show that was closest to what we were doing was, uh, goodness gracious me, probably. Although part of the way that you got to the punchline so quickly was by having these catchphrases. Yeah, but that's the oldest thing in the world. That goes right back to the traditions of British Music Hall, where these acts were travelling around the country and they'd come around like once a year and there was no TV or radio, so you'd have your catchphrases so you could put it on the posters, you know. Arthur, where's my washboard Atkinson, as it were? So it's like, oh, is that bloke? It's a kind of brand and it's a way of nailing things to the wall. And it goes right back to that. I mean, it's been a staple of, of British comedy. And, you know, I grew up watching Dick Emery, which was full of catchphrases. Dad's Army, Morecambe Wise, Harry Enfield, you know. We weren't really doing anything new. All we were doing that was new really was the speed of it and the chopping things up. 
And part of that actually was down to new technology with digital editing. It meant you were able to deal with smaller and smaller chunks. And did it make you famous at the time? I mean, certainly for me watching it, it felt like we would, you know, we'd all talk about the different, either just doing the phrases or people going, oh my God, did you watch it last night? Wasn't that a bit funny? Well, the characters sort of became famous, I think, some of them. Um, Paul was more famous than me because he was doing Harry on BBC One at the same time. I mean, it established me completely in the comedy world, which was nice. But I don't often get spotted in the street. Not even at the time, on a day-to-day? No, not particularly. I mean, most of my characters were fairly heavily disguised. I, I, I like that, hiding behind the characters. So you did three series at The Fast Show? Yeah, three series, some specials and a sort of strange half-series at the end. And some tours? Well, we did one residency at the Hammersmith Apollo. Well, the first one we did was actually, it was us and Shooting Stars. Because Vic and Bob approached us and they said, look, we want to do some Shooting Stars live stuff, but we know perfectly well that it won't sustain for a whole night out and people will be writing and clamouring for their money back. And they said, "What would you? Fe- how would you feel about doing a joint show where we do half each? Which we thought was a great idea because it meant then we didn't have to carry the whole thing, we didn't have to work out our whole evening's entertainment. And because Vic and Bob and Paul and myself and a couple of the other Fast Show team all had very young children at the time, we said, well, we can't actually do a tour, we don't want to be away on tour, so... Could we just do it at one place in London, have everyone come to us? And we ended up doing 32 nights there, which was, uh, I think our record has been beaten by Little Britain, but uh, that was great fun, just going down there every night and hanging out and having a laugh. Shooting Stars would do the first half and we'd do the second half. And uh, it was really good fun doing it live, and so we, that gave us the confidence a couple of years after that to do a proper tour of just ourselves. And then after the far show, you did a spin-off TV show for a while with Swiss Tony. I did this Swiss Tony sitcom, because I'd always wanted to try and do a very traditional studio-based sitcom. I thought it was quite a good challenge of limited number of sets, limited number of cast, very much studio-based uh, with an audience. But unfortunately, it was right after The Office, and everyone was saying oh, God, you know, you can't have people laughing on studio audience and you can't do it in the studio and, oh, this looks terribly old-fashioned. So we were slightly stumped by that. You did two series, didn't you? did two series, yeah. It was great fun to do and um, I think the shows are funny. It was for the launch of BBC Three. They said, look, we really want a big thing to launch the channel and then, you know, once we've done that, you can move over to BBC Two. But then by the time BBC Three came to launch, they would sort of reposition them very much as a kind of well, you know what BBC Three is now, it's kind of youthful, in-your-face, spunky kind of stuff. And uh, we'd done this sort of quite old-fashioned looking show and they weren't quite sure what to do with it, so they never properly pushed it and then we never moved over to BBC Two. So not many people have watched it, but it is very good and it is available on DVD. It would have been nice as everything, you know, if it had really... Because the thing about doing a traditional sitcom like that is... It's not designed to be a culty thing where you can find a little audience and a little fanatical audience and build that. Big sort of traditional sitcoms have to be in a big mainstream slot where a lot of people can watch it and view it and talk about it. It was never designed to be a little culty thing. After that, well, you did comedy drama thing that you worked and that you wrote for, Randall and Hopkirk, Deceased. Yes, which again, our timing was slightly wrong on that. It was very much meant to be a family thing and we ended up going out slightly too late at night on a Saturday night, which is a very competitive slot. And it should have been on what is now become that classic Doctor Who slot. That was really what it was designed for. And in fact, you know, we used a lot of the same people who've gone on to work on Doctor Who, including David Tennant, who was in the villain in the very first episode. And it was very kind of fantasy-based. And at the time, people didn't really want fantasy. This has always been a problem in Britain with dealing with fantasy. 
In Britain, a film is considered really good if it's really realistic. And people will slag things off saying, well, it's not very realistic. And it, it, so we end up doing that very, which we're very good at, that kind of Coronation Streety, very real um, drama. Anytime you start putting in fantasy and, and stuff like that, his people say, well, you get a bit lost by it. And I was really pleased that Doctor Who did take off and that that has sort of sparked a bit of a a reinterest in fantasy and a lot of other people trying to actually do that type of stuff now. Well, I guess also there's, you know, Harry Potter and Lord Harry of the Potter, Rings. Harry Potter, yeah. And, and, you know, and you can do a series like Life on Mars, for instance, which is quite a high concept and, and get away with that. So that stuff has all sort of happened since. So we, we were pioneers. That's was, my other way of saying not, not enough people watched it. Well, actually, they did, you see. They were still had quite good big viewing figures on those. I think we averaged about 9 or 10 million viewers. Which is huge. Mm. At the time, that wasn't seen as being enough. Was that the first thing that you wrote totally by yourself? Uh, well, I'd written... We had other writers. But yes, the, the episodes that I wrote, some of them I wrote by myself. I'd written books, thrillers, adult thrillers before then. But in terms of TV But yes, stuff. that was very much my own project because I was also producing that by myself and it was a mammoth undertaking and directing some of it as well I directed a couple of them yeah just because I wanted to learn how to do that you had good guest spots on there as well I mean you mentioned David Tennant but you had people who were already big stars you had Hugh Laurie Stephen Burkoff yes Charles Dance and we attracted a lot of really good a lot of people wanted to do it and a lot of people wanted to do it because they said well you know this is fun it's so different to the sort of normal dreary drama they get offered so it was a way of using people that I'd always been fans of, like Tom Baker, who was a regular on it, you know, having grown up with Doctor Who. To be able to just cast these people and things was fantastic. It was a sort of dream come true. So, yeah, we put in just a lot of people that we wanted to work with, really. After that, you did the radio show with Paul Whitehouse, Down the Line. Yes. On Radio 4. This is, it's like a spoof phone-in show. Yes. With Reese Thomas, who used to be on XFM. He used to do the breakfast he show did. on XFM. He got sacked. I don't know what for, do you know? Inappropriate language and behaviour. <laughs> right. So it's basically, it's like a spoof phone-in show. Yes, and he plays Gary Bellamy, the, the host, who's it is sort of based on sort of BBC local radio type of a radio host who can't offend the listeners and always has to be very polite rather than your kind of in-your-face uh, John Gaunt type of presenter. Because we wanted it to be about the callers, not so much about him, although he did develop a very good character for Gary Benamy. Paul and myself and uh, Simon Day, Felix Dexter, Amelia Bullmore, Lucy Montgomery played the core cast of callers. And because they're mostly idiots, the callers... You know, a John Gaunt-style person would cut them off after 10 seconds. So it had to be that sort of very nice BBC, you know, keep talking to these people, don't upset them type of thing to give space to us to do the calls. And Paul and I wanted to do it as a way of a way of just working together in a kind of fun, unpressurised, unstressful environment and to try out, to develop some new characters. So we did something which we'd not done before, which was it was all completely improvised. It's funny because when you're writing, Paul and I are writing, it is like doing improvised comedy. We'll just do characters and funny voices at each other and build up little routines and then we'll sit down and I'll try and remember what it was we said and tap it up on the computer. So we sort of cut out the writing process on the radio thing and did that live spontaneous thing with Reese doing these calls. And in each series, we'd probably spend about two days recording and then about six weeks editing. It's very much set up as if it was real. If you go on the BBC website, there's a profile of Gary Bellamy, which is pretty convincing, you know. Yeah, well, it, we wanted it to be... The problem with a lot of Radio 4 comedy is it, it is a bit kind of... They'll do a joke and then they'll explain the joke. They'll do a parody of something and then say, well, that was a parody of that. We wanted it to be very much, if you're listening to it, 
it is as if you're listening to a real a real radio phone in show and it wasn't our original intention but as we were approaching broadcast we're talking to the BBC Radio 4 about how to launch it and we started saying well how about if we did launch it as if Radio 4 really was doing a proper phone in show for the first time what had been your original intention then well just you know it's a new comedy series a radio phone in show which is as I say, a vehicle for us to do characters we thought actually it might give us quite a bit of publicity if we don't tell anyone. And in fact, only two or three people in Radio 4 knew that it was a spoof. And so it was launched as if Radio 4 was doing a new phone-in show and we put out quite a po-faced press release. And um, a lot of the radio reviewers were taken in by it and got very cross by it. And the problem with radio is they're so desperate to get coverage and press and media attention that they become very sycophantic towards the reviewers and those few outlets that there are. And they were terribly nervous of upsetting them. But luckily there was a new press person that just started at Radio 4 who hadn't had history of um, the terrible BBC politics of having to try and please everyone and not tread on any toes and also this kind of desperate neediness towards the, the radio reviewers. So she said, yeah, that would be great, let's do it. And um, there was even one of these reviewers got the editor of the newspaper to get in touch with the BBC and demand the resignation of the head of Radio 4 for hoodwinking their journalist. You know, luckily, nothing came of it. So it, it was quite fun to launch it like that. And after that sort of launch in the first series, a lot of people said, well, I suppose you'll make it more jokey now and change it around. And we said, no, actually, we quite like the fact that it is, whenever you're listening to it, it is as if you're listening to a real show. You never step outside that. Did you get complaints from listeners? Oh, yes, millions. We still do, because it doesn't sound like other Radio 4 comedies. And a lot of people accuse it of dumbing down, because, it, well, it's satire, and they can't tell the difference between a programme about stupid people and a stupid programme. And because we're never stepping back and saying, come on, aren't these people stupid? They kind of take it at face value. So there's a lot of material there for media studies students. <laughs> you won a Sony Radio Academy Award. Well, we did. I mean, that was the other thing. We always constantly, we have Gary Bellamy saying, hey, this is the award-winning Gary Bellamy here on the award-winning uh, down the line, because that's another thing in radio. They're so desperate to show off their awards everywhere. And in fact, we did a, um, a credit crunch special. And for the uh, trailer for that, we had even more of Gary Bellamy going on about the awards, because we'd actually won some real awards as well by then. So it was taking the piss out of that whole thing. And there were people logging on to the Radio 4 blog saying, God, I so hate it when these programmes go on and on about all their awards they've won in the trailers. You're thinking, you don't understand satire, do you? <laughs> you had some, as well as the regular presenters that you mentioned, you've had Catherine Tate coming in, Ian Lee, Matt Lucas doing phone calls. Yes, Harry Enfield. Um Oh, and a number of others. Well, they didn't actually come in because the great thing about it, because it is a radio phone-in, they just phone in from home. You just say, well, we'll be recording this afternoon, phone in sometime. And they just get patched through to as if it is an actual phone-in and Reese just talks to them. <laughs> so it's very easy for people to do, which is how we managed to get all those people to do stuff. And now you're doing a TV spin-off. Yes, because we really enjoyed doing it and we enjoyed the improvisational nature and we had developed some characters that we liked. And we liked working with Reese, and we thought his character was good. So we thought, how do we do the equivalent of this on TV? So we didn't want to do, you know, a televised radio phone-in. And we thought, well, the, the TV equivalent would be a kind of personality-led documentary series. So we're sort of using as a model all those isn't Britain brilliant documentaries, which are on all the time because they're cheap to make. So it's, you know, it's coast you get some presenters travelling around looking at lovely bits of Britain, meeting some quirky people, and you have a helicopter shot of the White Cliffs of Dover and a bit of Elgar and 
So you've got Coast, you've got Griff Rhys Jones, I think he's doing Rivers now or something, isn't he? Martin Clunes has done Islands, Titchmarsh did Animals, Dimbleby did Churches, James and Oz did Drink, Someone, uh, Robbie Coltrane did one, B-Road Britain or Back-Road Britain, we've done Britain's Hills. There's been so many of them, because they're cheap to make and you get a presenter out there wandering around. You give them a personality vehicle, Dimbleby's Range Rover, Billy Connolly with his three-wheel motorbike. So we thought that's an ideal thing. We'll send Gary Bellamy out in a sports car with a Union Jack on the bonnet, meeting the people of Britain. So it's about the people of Britain and what makes us British. And is it going to be Rhys Thomas? Yes, Rhys Thomas as Gary Bellamy and the people of Britain and me and Paul and all the other people I mentioned uh, in a variety of wigs. Is that going to be this year sometime? It'll be on in January. So you mentioned earlier on that you've been writing books kind of ever since you've been doing the comedy stuff. You've been writing novels. But you wrote your first novel when you were 40? Well, I've always enjoyed writing and I've always just written to entertain myself. So when I was a kid, if I read the type of book I liked, I'd try and write one like it. Have you still got any of the stuff? They're all in a box somewhere. Have you looked at them? No. But then the first book that you got published was King of the Ants. King of the Ants, which was 1991, I think. In fact, I wrote four adult thrillers in the early 90s, which had just been um, republished. Those came out between 91 and 96. Yeah, so it was as I was doing the TV stuff. But then as the fast show really took off, I just didn't have the time for writing books. And TV makes a hell of a lot more money than books. But then you've come back to it to do Young James Bond. Yes, I was approached out of the blue whilst I was working on Swiss Tony, in fact, to see if I was interested in writing James Bond books for children. I was approached by the Ian Fleming estate, who owned James Bond. And, you know, being a lifelong James Bond fan and having three young boys, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. So I took a bit of a step back from TV for a while. So how did it work? Did you have to do, like, a written audition or an interview or No, we, we, I was vetted. I had to meet the Fleming family members and the people who run the estate and talk to them about the ideas and how I saw the series. Because they were approaching proper writers, as it were, they didn't want to just sort of hire a ghostwriter, rent-a-hack type of thing to bash some words out. They wanted to have proper name authors. And so they knew that they couldn't get us to kind of each write a test chapter. But they heavily vetted us and they went with who they felt they could work with and had the right ideas for the series. And Probably the person they really wanted turned them down. <laughs> they ended up with me. Uh, but it went really well. I mean, I hadn't written for kids before, so it was an experiment for me. So I just tried it out on my own kids as I was writing it. And I wrote the sort of book I would have liked to read when I was like an 11-year-old boy. Well, you daunted that. I mean, it's a big deal. There's a lot of people who could get well, cross with you. Well, when I went. took it on, I was just really excited. I just thought, wow, this is fantastic. I can write an actual James Bond book, you know, where he says, hello, the name's Bond, James Bond. And he really is James Bond. And I thought, this is such fun. And the idea of the first book came together really quickly. It was only when I had sort of finished it and and they got round to actually then announcing it because the deal was when I wrote it if they didn't like it then it wouldn't come out as a James Bond book uh, but luckily they did write it so then they made the announcement it was only then that it sunk in I thought oh my god <laughs> I've written a James Bond book you know they're one of the best known characters in the world and people have a sort of heavy feeling of ownership of James Bond of what he should and shouldn't be and certainly when it came out the diehard Bond fans were absolutely furious at the idea of doing Bond for children they said, we don't want Harry Potter Bond, we don't want to see him doing his homework and picking his nose. And there was all jokes about, oh, I'll have a glass of milk shaken, not stirred, you know. And it sort of struck me, I thought, oh my God, you know, if they don't like this, I'm going to be pilloried till the end of time. But then luckily when the book came out, they realised that I'd written it from, I mean, I love Fleming's books. And it was a complete homage to Fleming and trying to fit in as far as possible with his timeline and his details and his facts. 
Luckily, the Bond nerds, really, they liked the books. You presumably had to be very meticulous when it came to research. Mm. For, for a start, you decided to set it in the 30s. Well, that was to fit in with the timeline of Fleming's books, where Bond was born roughly in 1920. And that was a fun part of it, actually, was rereading all the Fleming books and picking out any tiny bits of biographical detail. And it being Bond, there are so many books written about Bond and the history and the facts. So, And also, because I was working for the Fleming estate, they know Bond inside out. They could correct me or make suggestions. So that side of it was actually really good fun. But with all the research, I mean, you wrote one a year, did it not? Well, take that's a- what a writer does. It's their job. <laughs> I mean, it didn't fit, you know, if you're reading about James Bond and reading James Bond books, it doesn't feel like hard work. And I then sort of accidentally became a Bond buff. And so, in fact, when Celebrity Mastermind rang me and said, would I be interested in doing it? It was the only time in my life I've ever had a specialist subject. So I said, yeah, if I can do James Bond, I'll do it. And then, of course, I thought, oh, my God, what if I go on and get half the questions wrong? The Bond people could say, why is this idiot being allowed to write the books? Luckily, I got all the Bond questions right. But I was beaten in the general knowledge by Bill Oddie. I beat Jermaine Greer, though. Oh, did you? Yeah, well, she was hopeless on the Australian rainforests. So, James Bond, the main themes of James Bond are sex and killing and... Smoking cigarettes, drinking vodka, driving fast cars. So, how did you get round... Well, violence is not a problem. Kids love violence, particularly boys. More the merrier, as far as they're concerned. I've engineered ways for him to drive cars in most of the books. The first book, his uncle teaches him to drive an early Aston Martin in the field behind his house, and then later on he has to steal a lorry to escape. So normally in the course of having to save the world, he does have to drive a car. Uh, There's no cigarettes, I'll dispense with that. There's a bit of alcohol drinking. He gets tortured by being forced to drink a bottle of gin in one of the books. It's a sort of introduction of his iron stomach. (laughs) And the trickiest thing is sex. In, in all of my life um, because boys don't really want to read about snogging and all that stuff but they do accept that he is James Bond and you have to have girls in the book and he does have to misbehave with them so that's a tricky thing and also I've taken a break from doing the books I've written five and it, he's reached a point in his life where I'm slightly thinking well he's getting quite old now and he's going to have to be going a bit further with these girls so how do I keep it for the same readership What about with the violence how do you not glamorise it? Well violence is glamorous isn't it? Well, because there's a strong sense of right and wrong. And I always try and get across that actually violence is quite nasty and destructive and hurtful, which if you read the Fleming books, that's very clear. I mean, Bond doesn't take any pleasure in in any of the violence and, and it is always very nasty and visceral. And, you know, I try and get across in the books that violence hurt people and that good people as well as bad can get killed and terrible things happen to them. So you can slip in a kind of message like that as long as you have people dying in a variety of nasty ways. Was staying true to all the Fleming stuff, did you have any fun with the baddies? Like in the way that Fleming, you know, I know that Goldfinger was named after Erno Goldfinger, who was the architect that did the Trellick Tower because Fleming wasn't a fan. Did you use that to sneak in any little bit? I also was lucky that Goldfinger was actually called Goldfinger. And then coincidentally, he had a great love of gold. You know, I wonder if he'd had a great love of fish or something. He'd have been Fishfinger. It's a hell of a coincidence, that. No, I mean, well, actually, coming up with the villains and the names of the villains is the hardest bit, really, because Fleming did it so well and they're so memorable, those villains. And I was also trying to get away from, you know, as the books and the films went on, they were sort of pushing the kind of more bizarre physical aspects of the villains into sort of, you know, the scarred face. And I was trying to get away from the whole kind of disability equating with evil kind of aspect. So trying to make them physically memorable and interesting and have good names is hard. 
but fun at the same time. It's been a phenomenal success. It's been uh, fantastic. Yeah. It's been translated into 24 different languages. When it got released in America, they had to cut some bits out for being a bit racist. They did. Well, in, not racist, no. They, no, racy. They, a racy. Yeah, well, they did. They trimmed some of the violence and some of... There's a bit where in the first book he has a kind of a, a tussle with the girl. Because my experience, boys, that's their kind of clumsy way of... Uh, Expressing sexual interest is to try and fight girls, a bit of wrestling or whatever. So there's a bit where the girl is described as gripping him between her thighs, I think, which they objected to. And they took some of the violence out. Although by the time they got to the second book, I think they realised that they, that had been a mistake. The thing is, I mean, they're, they're so touchy in America. The whole children's book thing is very heavily ruled by librarians, school teachers, and influential booksellers. And they have that American moral thing. You know, that ridiculous thing in America where you can't buy a toy gun anywhere to save your life, but you can go to the local supermarket and buy a real machine gun. So they're kind of, you know, it's that thing we know from American TV and kids' films, the moral message and the not wanting to give the wrong ideas to kids. But, but I think that things have changed over there as well as over here where there's been a big change in that front, where because they want to get boys reading, they're, they're dropping their standards, letting people like me write nasty books. It's been made into a computer game and a graphic novel. Are there any plans for films? That's not in my hands. That's between the Fleming Estate and um, E.ON, who own the film rights, and they're constantly having discussions about it. So yeah. would you have any say or any... I don't know. As I say, it's not in my hands. Well, as far as I know, nothing is happening, so it's not really... A... Whether I'd have any say in it or not, I, uh, who knows. So you've written five. Is there a plan to write any more to bridge the I'd gap? like to write some more, but I mean, in the meantime, I've got this new series of books out. You've written this new book, The Enemy. Yeah, well, I mean, having written James Bond, which has been fantastic fun, and being able to work with James Bond, but in the end, I didn't create James Bond. It is someone else's idea. So I was itching to do a new series of books for kids with my own ideas. And having done thrillers, I thought it would be good to have a go at doing scary horror books. But there's a strong action-adventure element in it as well. And yeah, I mean, it's a, a horror book for kids. I am a grown woman. I just finished reading it and I was terrified. I was Good. kind of, I would sit reading and it was hard to put down because there's a lot of interwoven stories and you want to find out what happens. And then I had to carry on reading even when I was too tired to read because I was too scared to stop reading. <laughs> and this is aimed at kids. Do you test well, it kids love being own? scared like anyone else, you know, and it, it, it's safe scares. I mean, there's a fantasy element to it. The idea is that everybody over the age of 14 has contracted this disease which has either killed them off or turned them into basically zombies. So I used to have the fancy a lot as a kid. You know, wouldn't it be great if all the adults just disappeared and you could have the run of London, you could go in all the sweet shops, you could go and live in Buckingham Palace. So that was one idea. And then I thought, well, yes, but what if there's a threat? So it's the idea that these hideously diseased adults are roaming the streets trying to catch children to eat them to survive. So it's kids versus adults, which is great for kids. Kids versus zombies. And because they're zombies, you can do what you like to them. You can smash the hell out of them. And it is quite violent. In oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, kids love violence. But the other thing that I think is interesting about it is it's not like some kind of schlocky horror where someone comes in and you go, well, that's an incidental character. They're clearly going to get killed, you know, mm. and all of our heroes are going to survive. There's, without giving anything away, there are things that happen that are genuinely very shocking. Yeah, well, that, that was another thing from writing the James Bond books. Occasionally boys would say to me, oh, I found the book really exciting and quite scary bits, but I always knew in the end that James Bond was going to be all right because he's James Bond and he grows up to be James Bond. And that is a problem when you've got a recurring hero, which is why in the books and in the films they always give Bond a sidekick and normally gets bumped off, either a girl or a colourful local character. 
So I thought, well, the great thing about doing a new series of books is when you start it, the kids aren't going to know who's going to live and who's going to die by the end of it. So I created a sort of gang of kids and they're all equally important and I hope sort of interesting and the kids like them. And it's kind of, it is much more scary if you think, well, any one of these could die and a lot of them do. (laughs) It's the beginning of a series, right? Yes. Do you know how many in the series? Well, I, I think initially I've been contracted to do three and as with the Bond, if they're popular and successful and kids want more I mean there's so much you can do with the story I know it's really early days but the other thing I found on reading it is that you do just go this would make an amazing film it's a tricky one it's a tricky one because it is kids and it would need to be a kids and what I loved about the book was trying to do everything you'd get in an adult scary book or film and do it for kids so that they can share in that so if you did do a film of it you'd want it to be a film that kids could go and see but you can get away with the higher levels of, of gore and violence in a book than you can in a kid's film. That being said, it's quite interesting, you know, the sort of films that were X certificate when I was a kid, or 18 as it then became, you know, like Hammer films and that, now would probably go out as a 12. And something like uh, The New Doctor Who, probably if it had been as a film, would have gone out as an 18. Standards have changed a lot on that front and sort of scariness and gore and monsters and stuff. And Harry Potter, for instance, is as scary as the Hammer horror films, really. So, yeah, to do it as a film, that then becomes tricky on on what level of violence and gore you could get away with. But also, in the book, you've got quite young children committing quite extreme acts of violence in some bits. Well, they've got to to survive. And so that presumably would be tricky just in terms of, I don't know, like child standards for filming. Yes, well, I I don't know any of that. So, I mean, I've written it, films and that, that all comes later. I, I just want them to work as books and for kids to get the same thrill out of them as I got as a teenager watching horror films. So that book, The Enemy, is out today. Yes. I really, genuinely, absolutely loved it. Read it Good. much yeah. quicker than I do usually any other book. I thought it was brilliant <laughs> and terrifying. And it's got its own website, hasn't it? Uh, yes, the-enemy.co.uk. Charlie Hickson, thanks so much for coming. Well, out. thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.